Now, just this last Thursday evening at our prayer meeting, I was explaining that I don't generally preach on the doctrines of Reformed Christianity, that instead I allow the doctrines to to inform my preaching. And so here I am today preaching on one of the solas. We all know the solas. Sola is, of course, the Latin word for alone. The solas of Reformed Christianity are not in order, are sola Christus, Christ alone, uh, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola deo gloria, the glory of God alone, and the last one, but actually the first one, is sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola scriptura means that the scriptures alone are our highest and final authority, not man's tradition, not the teachings of a church, but scripture alone. Scripture takes priority in Christian worship and in Christian life. Scripture also takes priority over tradition. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with tradition. In fact, in a teaching a couple of weeks ago, I, I brought you traditions of where the apostles went to teach and traditions of how they died. Because, except for James in the Bible, uh, we, we didn't know how they died. And we only knew where a few of them went to teach. So, yeah, traditions can be good, but they don't take authority. And when we use them, we should realize that that's all we're doing is passing along a tradition. It's when we elevate tradition over the clear teaching of Scripture that we have problems. One of my long-standing bugaboos, that's a technical theological term, um, is the Catholic and Episcopalian and, and Eastern Orthodox sects calling their priests father. It used to be that if you asked a Catholic why they did that, they would answer tradition. They've gotten a little bit more nuanced than that. Uh, I was on a number of Catholic sites this week looking up to see what they had to say about uh, calling no man father. And they said, well, you know, the Ten Commandments say honor your father and your mother. Okay, got it. Um, Paul called Timothy his son in the faith, which implies that Paul was his father in the faith. Well, yeah. Um, And we obviously have earthly fathers. Well, yeah. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus didn't just warn against calling people father. He actively called it out. You see, at this time, we know that Paul sat under Gamaliel, and the rabbis would be called father by their, by their disciples as a term of respect, but also a, a term that went beyond that. Matthew 23 shows the traditions of the Jews. Rabbis love to be called rabbi, teacher, just as college uh, teachers today 
love to be called professor, and if they have a terminal degree, to be called doctor. Uh, Rabbis and scribes and Pharisees loved to be called father, loved... Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greeting in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They love the trappings of the position. Uh, Jesus says here they love their phylacteries. If you don't know what a phylactery is, I've seen pictures of them before, but I had to look it up. They're a little cube box made out of leather. Um, You kept a fragment of scripture in them, and they would tie them to their foreheads and to their left arms for... um, uh, for their religious purposes. And so they, Jesus says they, um, they make their phylacteries large, as big as they can, and their fringes long. They loved their place of honor, Jesus says, at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and to be called rabbi. Jesus goes on in... Uh, and says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now that seems a little bit of, to be a clear teaching here on, on how Jesus comes down among this. Verse 11, he says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. False teachers make their converts a child of hell. So does anyone who elevates tradition over scripture. He continues on, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple... He is bound by his oath. Now, this is not in Scripture. There's no Scripture that says that. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. 
And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then finally he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying if we had lived in the days of our fathers we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets fill up then the measure of your fathers you serpents you brood of vipers how are you to escape being sentenced to hell I was just reading something about we need more muscular Christianity in in the world today. Jesus, you know, everybody talks about Jesus is love, and Jesus is love, but he's also just, and he's also angry, righteously angry. Swearing by the temple or the gold or the altar, we're all just traditions, rabbis' rules, tithing the mint and cumin, they were called for in the uh, Old Testament laws, but they did that to show how scrupulous they were in their tithing and not for any other good reason. Jesus accuses them of hypocrisy, that they pay attention to the minutest detail of Jewish law while neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. So our passage today is Acts 1, 9 through... Oh, is Acts 1, 12 through 14, but I'm going to start with 9 through 11, uh, which we covered last week in a, in a burst of uh, prodigious covering of Scripture. 9 through 11 says, And when he had done these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And verses 12 through 14 now, which is what we're studying today, says, They then returned to Jerusalem, from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, 
and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, with, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I seem to say this every week, but I need to read my Bible more closely and understand it a little bit better. The disciples returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day journey. So what's a Sabbath day journey? It wasn't walking on the Sabbath. Well, it was walking on the Sabbath, but it was how far you could walk on the Sabbath. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that says how far you can walk on the Sabbath. Like I say, don't go looking for this in your Bible. This is not one of the 613 laws found there. No, it was made up by the rabbis because 613 laws didn't seem to be enough for them. They decided how far one could walk from Exodus 16, 22 through 30 and Joshua 3, 2 through 4. The Exodus passage reads, On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread. Now this is talking about the manna in the wilderness. They were uh, instructed to pick up manna five days a week, and on the sixth day they picked up a double amount so that they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all of the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside until the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath day to the, a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, now, once again, I like how much people back then are just like us today. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, the Israelites being self-described by God as a stiff-necked people probably immediately started thinking, well, how far can I walk on the Sabbath? So they went to the book of Joshua, and the tabernacle in the wilderness in the ark. Joshua 3, 1 through 4 says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the a Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. 
Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way. Now, if that doesn't sound to you like an order of how far you can walk on the Sabbath, I agree with you. But this is where they got it from, that the ark was going to go before them 2,000 cubits. And suddenly this became how far you could walk on the Sabbath. Now, 2,000 cubits is about three quarters of a mile. So this is all your... And they also say that it's about the diameter of a village. So you can walk across your village in most cases. So back to Acts. The apostles travel the three-quarter miles back to Jerusalem and the upper room where they were staying. Again, it does not identify the upper room as the place that the Last Supper was at or even as the place that they were waiting previously when Jesus was with them. But it doesn't say it isn't. And it was a big room uh, owned by a wealthy person once again. Verse 13 then gives us a list of the apostles that were in Jerusalem, and it's an identical list to the one in Luke 16, uh, Luke 6.14, except for a variation in the order. Uh, a couple of the quatrains are moved around. And minus Judas Iscariot, which is understandable. Verse 14a says, All these, and that means the apostles, were with one, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, Now, some have taught that they were praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But Scripture does not say that. What Scripture does say, back in Acts 1, 4 through 5 is, And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not too many days from now. They did not have to pray for the gift. Jesus has prayed, uh, promised that they are going to receive it. They merely had to wait on God's timing. The promise was theirs and would be fulfilled. Now here's where the bulk of our teaching is going to be. Verse 14b. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, you might not think there's a lot there, and maybe there isn't, but finally now, Jesus' brothers and mother were believers in Jesus and with the apostles in the upper room. This is the first time we've seen this. But that's not what's noteworthy about this passage. You see, nowadays, in some teachings, and it's called Mariology, Mary has been raised to the level of Jesus as a co-redemptrix, that you come to God through Jesus by way of Mary. They say Jesus will give Mary anything she asks for because she's his mother. My big question is, if she's the co-redemptrix of the world, why is this verse the last mention of her in the Bible? Chapter 1 of Acts is the last time Mary is ever mentioned in the Bible. Paul never mentions her in any of his epistles. Now, 
he didn't run with that crowd. He was really, you know, off with the Gentiles. But she doesn't show up in any of Peter's letters either. Now, Peter was close to Mary. Nor is Mary mentioned in John's writings. Jesus said to John at the cross, Behold your mother, and to his mother, Behold your son. And from that day, uh, uh, Mary went to live in John's house. She does not show up in the book of James, nor is she mentioned in the book of Jude, and James and Jude were her sons. Okay? How do you construct a theology around someone who disappears in the New Testament at the beginning of the fifth book? We don't know where she lived. We do know that she was supposed to live with John. We don't know when she died. We don't know what she did. We don't know what she said. So again, how do you construct a theology around Mary? Well, you construct it because it's not there in the Bible. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 through says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at a proper, proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says, I'm telling you the truth. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So, someone here is lying. Either Paul is lying, or churches that teach otherwise are lying. And this is not to attack Mary. By any means, Mary would be horrified to be elevated to the place of God. Mary was human. She was not, as Jesus was, fully God and fully man. In, in Acts, we see uh, Paul and Barnabas teaching in Athens, and the people start bowing down to them because the teaching is so powerful. And they shred their clothes and they say, Friends, why are you doing this? We're not gods. Get up. Mary would have said the same thing. Mary was fully man, and fully man. Co-redemptrix is not the only mistaken dogma of the Catholic Church. Without any scriptural evidence, they claim that Mary was born without original sin. It's called the Immaculate Conception. That she, because she was going to be giving birth to the Son of God, did not partake in original sin. That is not in scripture. That is tradition. They say she was a perpetual virgin, despite evidence of Jesus having brothers and sisters. Uh, they make the claim that, well, those were either Joseph's children from another marriage, or they were actually cousins, which were sometimes called brothers. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that when the Bible calls James and Judas Jesus' brothers, that they were Jesus' brothers. They also claim that Mary was taken bodily up into heaven, a la Elijah. 
Again, there is no scriptural evidence, only the traditions of man. Now, once again, I have looked up every reference to Mary in the Bible and read through them. And I'm not going to read them all to you. And I'm not going to share that many with you here because most of them are redundant. The Gospels talk a lot about Mary. Remember, only the Gospels talk about Mary and this one fragment of a sentence in Acts. So, we first see Mary, and I'm going to use the first chapter of Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So the two things we know is that she was favored by God and, well, she was favored by God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Anyway, Mary ends up saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, that was all that was said about her right there. A little bit later on, she visits her cousin Elizabeth. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste in the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to see me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary was indeed blessed among women. After the birth of Jesus, uh, well, even before the birth of Jesus, we have the Magnificat of Mary. I'm not going to read that, but we know that after the birth of Jesus, that Mary was visited by the shepherds watching their flocks and later by the wise men. Next we see Mary when Jesus is presented at the temple in Luke 2. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, and that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, His father and mother 
marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Amazing things are being said about Jesus, but Mary was still just a mother and it says at points she treasured these things up in her heart or she pondered these things and she didn't really quite grasp what was going on. Then Jesus, Joseph and Mary traveled to Jerusalem but when they returned home Jesus had stayed behind and his parents, his parents did not know it but supposing him to be in the group they sent, went a day's journey and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances and when they did not find him they returned to Jerusalem searching for him after three days they found him in the temple He said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all all these things in her heart. We read last week and the week before and probably the week before that of Mary at the crucifixion. But standing by the cross was Mary of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he said to his mother woman behold your son then he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home and lastly the resurrection Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified." And he is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he laid. And that's just about all the times Mary shows up in the scripture. I've held two back. Because I think the next one is where we get our false teaching from. And it's the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciple. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, one of the teachings is that uh, uh, Jesus will not deny anything that Mary asks him, and this is the only place where we see this. However, she didn't ask him anything. She made a statement. She said, They have no wine. But we know from the way Jesus responded what was being asked of him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to to do with me? And a number of times when Jesus uh, talks to women, he does say, Woman. And I've always thought that was sort of, you know, abrupt or maybe, maybe impatient. And no, it was the common way of 
talking to women at this time. It was a show of respect to say, woman, I know when I say that to my wife. Oh, I never say that to my wife, but I know if I did, I probably wouldn't come out on the better end of it. Anyway, says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And I'm always asking questions up here. It says that this was the first of Jesus' signs. So a question is, why did Mary come to him about the lack of wine? What did she expect Jesus to do about it? Is this where the teaching of a co-redemptrix comes from? That Jesus couldn't say no to his mother about the wine in Cana. So therefore, we should pray to Mary to intercede for us. I think that the answer is yes. It's the only place I can see in the scriptures that even fits anything. What son would refuse his mother's request? What mother doesn't believe totally in her son, especially when that mother is visited by an angel to tell her of the miraculous birth she's going to experience, encounters Simeon in the temple, has lived daily in the presence of the goodness of God? What mother wouldn't be totally on board with the ministry of her son to the point of sharing that ministry as co-redemptrix? Well, Mark chapter 3, starting in verses 13, and it goes through 21, it says, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might, send, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, Bartholomew, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat and when his family heard of it they went out to seize him for they were saying He's out of his mind. That's his family saying Jesus is out of his mind. 
And further down in verse 31, and we've covered this before, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' family was not part of his ministry. They thought he was crazy and out of his mind. They were going to seize him to take him home. His family, including his mother, were against his ministry. You could truly say, at this point, they were anti-Christ. And there's no other way to put it. None of them, not even Mary, believed in Jesus until after his resurrection. Back to Acts 1, 12-14. Then they returned to Jerusalem for the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, were, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And that's it. That's the last time that we'll see Mary in the scriptures. She simply disappears. The question remains, however, why would anyone, church or not, elevate her to be equal to God? Why give her a position of mediator between man and God that is explicitly given only to Jesus Christ? And these, these, these things really do bother me because what is the point of elevating Mary above what Scripture gives her? Scripture tells us who she was. And what's more, it tells us that she was a good woman and a godly woman, that she was favored with God. Why do something that scripture doesn't say? Why use a tradition? And the only answer I can come with up with is by elevating Mary, they're elevating man. And by elevating Mary to the position of Jesus, they're lowering Jesus to the position of man. That's what man-made religions do. If you look through history, the Romans did it. The Greeks did it. Their, their gods and their demigods, their gods were human life. Their demigods were half human. I mean, in the world today, the Mormons do it. One of their sayings is, what man is, God once was. What God is now, man can be. It's a heresy as old as the world going back to the Garden of Eden and a serpent lying about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That the reason it was forbidden to them by God was because surely if they ate it, they would be like God. 
Ultimately, elevating Mary to something she isn't strips her of what she was. The young woman who found favor with God, who glorified God, entrusted with the raising of the Son of God, who traveled on the path to faith as all Christians do, and ultimately was proved faithful and had a place in that company of the apostles. What we knew of Mary from the scriptures is better than any man-made tradition about her. Her true position in church history, her true relationship in the life of Jesus is by far more important than what man's traditions say about her. Because what God says about Mary and what God says about us as we follow his word is the truth and the only truth. No tradition comes close to that. Follow the scriptures. Do not follow men. Let's close in prayer. Lord, as we study your word and study the life of of your true saints and of what they have done. And, and as we go further into Acts, we will be seeing what the apostles faced, what they did, the courage they showed, the humility they showed. Lord, let us understand what our place in your kingdom is and have us not shirk from it or bokingly think that it's more than it is. Lord, guide us as we follow your word and help us to obey your call. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.